Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Episode 123. In 1923, Roy and Walt Disney founded the Walt Disney Company. I have been banned for life from Disney World because I tried to spread my mom's remains around the park. I guess I should have had her cremated first. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 123rd episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, we speak with Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. He's also the host of the CNN podcast, Chasing Life, as well as an associate professor of neurosurgery at Emory University Hospital and associate chief of neurosurgery at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta. We hear all about Dr. Gupta's new book, World War C, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, and how to prepare for the next one. Dr. Gupta also shares his insights from his other recent book, which explains how people can heighten brain function to be more productive and maintain healthy lifestyles. I could use more of that. I could actually, I want more brain functions so I can have the lifestyle I want to destroy those brain functions. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, his advice around family was, uh, I think it was moving. And overall, Dr. Gupta strikes Strikes us as a pretty measured person. He's really able to take a thoughtful approach in seeing both sides of every situation. He's one of these kind of, I don't know, Doogie Hauser types. He, he went to medical school at the age of 16 and is kind of crazy smart. And it's just nice that people that smart and that motivated decide to go into a field where they're going to have that sort of positive impact on people. Anyways, and he's dreamy. He has good hair, which is, which is really important. All right, what's happening? We've been thinking a lot about America's race to the super app, super app. And that is how companies are going to pivot toward combining features such as payments, transportation, delivery, commerce, and social media all on one platform, similar to the way Tencent serves as kind of the operating system for a lot of people's interaction or their digital, digital interface, if you will, in China. So let's discuss how we're seeing this play out in real time. Last week, Square pulled a Facebook and decided to change its name to Block. Where do you work? Block. Oh, God. That's awful. Block. Mm, something about the blockchain, I think. Anyways, as a way to signal that the company isn't just about payments, it wants consumers to know that it's an overarching ecosystem of several lines of business. Block, formerly known as Prince. Uh, wait, no, Block, formerly known as Square, already offers an arsenal. By the way, let's just talk a little bit about my favorite artists. Uh, George Michael, Tom Petty, 
and Prince, all dead. And I think they all died of opioids, but we didn't want to call it opioids for some reason. And uh, literally everyone I listened to in college uh, died within like a six-month period. If I were REM, I would not leave the house. I would not leave the house. Anyway, anyway, Block already offers an arsenal of super app services, peer-to-peer payments, cash app, crypto and stock trading, also cash app, lending, afterpay, music streaming, title. That one made no sense to me. It's dabbled in food delivery. Caviar sold to DoorDash in 2019, by the way. I love caviar. I love caviar. I'm in New York. I practically live on caviar. My refrigerator is no joke. Champagne, Cool Whip, and that's about it. Champagne and Cool Whip. Why is the Cool Whip there? I don't know. Anyway, now what you were asking, building social into the platform for Block or the Block platform is the logical next step to becoming America's first super app. This could be really interesting uh, what would be the gangster move and is a non-zero probability of happening is that Jack Dorsey could reunite his sister wives and acquire Twitter via uh, Square or Block. Block, bitter. Block and Twitter, bitter. Oh, yeah, that's the super app I can play a role in. Bitter. So let's be clear. This is a crowded space and it's only going to get more competitive. Just last week, ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, Invested $10 million in iMile, a last-mile courier service that connects mostly Chinese e-commerce companies to consumers in the Middle East. Over in India, the country's super app Paytm IPO'd with a $20 billion valuation, the largest public listing in the nation's history. However, it shed more than a fifth of its value on the first day of trading and settled at $14 billion. I wonder if they tried to issue too many shares to the market. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Because the competition in India now includes Amazon Pay, Google Pay, WeChat, and Phone Pay, owned by Flipkart slash Walmart. Southeast Asia also hosts many players. Gojek, Line, C Limited, Tokopedia, Zalo, and more. A lot of cool names there. Not as cool as Block, but still cool names. So again, uh, a crowded space, but for good reason. The super app market is the digital iron throne. Super apps live on mobile, and mobile is the internet in emerging markets. India, for example, has three times as many cellular subscribers as the U.S. Think about that for every one cell phone. In the U.S., there's three in India. And Indians spend 17% more time on their phones than the U.S. I can't even imagine that. The firm that establishes super app leadership in America, however, I believe, I believe, will be the most valuable firm in the world. The super app in China and in India will be the most valuable firm in those sovereigns. But the most valuable firm in the world will be the one that achieves, if anyone achieves, super app status and what is the largest economy in the world. So this is... Um, I think this is kind of the battle to end all battles, if you will. These companies are investing billions, uh, specifically Google and Apple, if you think about it, are investing billions to try and prevent a super app from emerging and going around what is the kind of arbiter, ultimate toll boost of our digital life, and that is Google and Apple. So to a certain extent, the App Store is in many ways a super app, but more than anything, it's the ultimate block from anyone establishing a super app. The radical transformation of Apple under Tim Cook really has been a decade-long project to extend the company's ecosystem to nullify the potential for a super app to sit on top of iOS. It explains why Apple now offers both credit and debit systems and why you can use your Apple ID to sign into a huge range of third-party services and why Cook is giving Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston hundreds of millions of dollars to produce an inferior version of Murphy Brown. I just don't get that. Do you get it? I watched it, The Morning Show. Fine. Talented people. But it's literally the same budget as Game of Thrones. Same budget. So I say, can I trade in 
the morning show for another season of Game of Thrones? Seriously, that's what we need. Can the blockchain accomplish that for us? The likely epicenter for aspiring super apps is fintech. Payments in particular, they get data, they get outsized market capitalizations that can help them go buy the other stuff. So PayPal, which owns Venmo, could likely be the epicenter here, and also Block. Um, fintech unicorns are taking over the world, and we don't, they don't get, they actually, they get a lot of recognition, but not the recognition they deserve. CB Insights reported that as of Q3 2021, there were 206 of these billion-dollar uh, unicorns, which is double what we saw in the same quarter in 2020. Think about that. The unicorn barn has doubled in just 12 months, and that is the fintech unicorn barn. Fintech funding in the U.S. alone grew 121% year-over-year and reached nearly $15 billion in the third quarter of this year. That's equivalent to nearly half of total Q321 funding, even though the U.S. only makes up about 39% of total deals. So, what does all of this mean? Uh, I've lived through a half a dozen of these techno-social transitions from the PC era to dot-coms, through mobile to social, and now this. Every shift has created more wealth than the one before, but also levied more harm. One thing they all had in common is that we never really saw them coming. Uh, in hindsight, these things look obvious, but none of these transitions have manifested as we've expected, which is one of the wonderful things about the world. You kind of have your list of what you think is going to happen. And then the future happens. For the most part, uh, unfortunately, with big tech, the expectations have been more naive or more optimistic than the reality. The externalities have been really severe, or in some, uh, the reality has been worse than our expectations. We were supposedly going to be solving world hunger and flying around the world in you know mini Jetson pods, and instead we got 280 characters. That was a big innovation, which meant you could plan an insurrection at half the time, I guess. Anyways, the difference now is that we can see super apps coming, or at least I think that there's a battle going on and someone is going to try and establish a new operating system sitting on top of things called a super app. As consumers, investors, and elected leaders, we have a chance to do better, don't we? We have a chance to do better this time, to set the stage for competition and empowerment, not co-option and enragement. So uh, a few thoughts. Uh, you could have Twitter turn around, or you could have Square turn around in a man bites dog scenario. You could have Square acquire Twitter, and overnight, it's sort of a ten cent light. It would be interesting to see. I don't think uh, Facebook can is Facebook's sort of the logical one to be the super app, but they, I don't think, have had a lot of uh, success around innovation as it relates to uh, anything that's uh, homegrown. They're very good acquirers. Potentially, they could acquire their way to super app, uh, but I think again, it probably comes from fintech. PayPal could be the epicenter, uh, but what could be the super app? Or might it be that iOS and Google become our continue or extend or put out their elbows and maintain their sort of super app status? I don't know. It's going to be interesting. But what we do know, what we do know, or what I believe we know, is that in five years, the most valuable company in the world will likely uh, be associated with a term, and that term is super app. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. 
like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the Chief Medical Correspondent for CNN. Sanjay, Dr. Gupta, where does this podcast find you? Uh, In my basement, in a little closet that used to be uh, just for linens and stuff like that. That seemed like the perfect place to try and soundproof a bit and uh, turn into Mm -hmm. a podcast booth. So you've been at the forefront of this pandemic since the early days And in your new book, World War C, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, you share what you've learned about the virus's behavior and what we can do to remain resilient against the next pandemic. As as someone who's really been at the helm of the bobsled through all this, can you kind of give us sort of your raw, unvarnished thoughts on what's gone on here? The uh, years before the pandemic, the United States was often thought of as the the most prepared country in the world for a pandemic and for all sorts of different reasons. I mean, they had a pandemic preparedness plan at one point. Obviously, a wealthier country uh, was at the forefront of of a lot of research on vaccines and therapeutics and all that. Um, and I think what has happened is that uh, maybe maybe because of that that hubris to some extent, um, I think a lot of basic preparedness, strategies were were not really implemented. Some of it mm-hmm. some of it totally totally defensible in the sense that things didn't work that they thought would work. Uh, but some of it, uh, you know, the idea of not leaning into basic public health practices because of the belief that, you know, eventually science will rescue us. So we don't necessarily have to do the same things that other countries do. And I don't I really honestly, Professor, don't say this to malign anyone as much as a sort of looking back almost like an autopsy in, into what happened. And to, and to basically state that, look, you have to account for that in your risk assessments of things. We tend to think that uh, just explain things really clearly and logic will win the day. But, you know, that's not the case. And it hasn't been the case well before this pandemic as well. So this was not the black swan event, Scott. I think that's what really struck me. You know, uh, SARS back in 2003, that had a 10% fatality rate, um, hmm. 10%. This is probably hovering closer to 0.5, 0.6%, still very deadly, but like five or six times worse than flu. But if you imagine the idea of a very transmissible virus like this one with a much higher mortality rate, that's what everyone has been worried about. And this wasn't it. And so, mm-hmm. so hopefully there's some lessons learned because if we had treated the original SARS like this with a high transmissibility, that would have been a, it would have been a catastrophe. So there's a narrative that uh, mostly from more conservative factions in the U.S. that this is like the flu, we've overreacted, the flu kills people everywhere, that this is just endemic. It's part of of a static part of our society, and there's been an overreaction. In your book, Mm. you argue that it's actually possible to become pandemic-proof, that just as we think of national security or even internet security, 
we need to make investments into pandemic security. So how do we get there? If you were asked to develop our pandemic proofing, what, what do you think we should do? Well, first of all, I mean, the idea of having it sit somewhere, not necessarily a new agency or anything like that, but having a a pandemic preparedness agency or unit of some sort uh, makes a lot of sense. Because Mm -hmm. I think what ends up happening is we end up thinking about these potential pandemics almost like weather events. They're just going to happen. They're preordained. Nothing you can do about it. Shelter in place. Survey the damage once it's done. And instead of thinking about it more like a defense sort of proposition. Hey, let's mm-hmm. invest. Let's go ahead and run the, run the drills, make sure that we know anything that could happen. We know that we're prepared. Some people will argue that you're spending too much on preparation for something that hasn't happened. That'll always be a debate. But you don't have to litigate all these decisions in the throes of something. So part of being pandemic-proof means setting up this pandemic preparedness plan and and continuing to support it, invest in it. I mean, and again, we had one. George W. Bush in 2004 pushed for a pandemic preparedness plan. And, you know, this is a couple of years into the war on terror. So everyone was like, Mm -hmm. you know, are you kidding me? We have other things going on. And he had read John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, and felt adamant that we needed it and even put a price tag on it, which was about 30 bucks per citizen per year. And Mm -hmm. um, he said for that, because you're funding virus hunters out in the field, they find the jumps from uh, from animals to humans. Hmm. You're funding universal vaccine platforms. You're funding public health. So you can find the real genesis of, of these outbreaks very early, as opposed to when they've already spread, you know, quite robustly, as, as was the case here. So, you know, all, all these different strategies, and there's lots of them, um, for about that price, you can essentially, you're not going to prevent new pathogens from emerging that is the world in which we live. But the idea that they have to turn into a pandemic like this, I think that's that's very preventable. You say that an outbreak anywhere in the world is an outbreak everywhere in the world. What insight can you share about how wealthier and poorer nations have fared against the virus? Well, there's always a disparity. You know, I, I've covered, you know, as I mentioned, these outbreaks for, for 20 years. And, you know, there has been another pandemic, which was H1N1 2009. But I've also covered Zika and Ebola and malaria and tuberculosis and HIV AIDS. And and when you sort of look at these things, typically there's a disparity in terms of how some countries fare versus others. And that was the case here as well, but in almost the exact opposite way that you'd expect. As a general rule, not across the board, but as a general rule, wealthier countries did poorly. Um, Smaller percentage of the worldwide population and uh, a desperately higher percentage of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. So hmm. that was pretty horrifying, to be honest, uh, when you started to actually look at these numbers and see what was also going on in other parts of the world. Um, places that had their first patients diagnosed on the same day the first patient was diagnosed in the United States and seeing our our trajectory go into exponential growth and and their growth stay relatively flat. So um, th- there, there was a lot of there was a lot of disparity here, and it continues to be honest. But um, again, so much of that was preventable, and and it's not that there was some magic therapeutic or something else that was present in these other places that was not in the United States. But um, we, we just we just didn't lean into it uh, uh, the way that I think a lot of people just expected we would. 
So let me put forward a thesis, and you and you uh, confirm it or push back on it. So 5% of the world's population, I don't know, what are we, 12, 15% of the world's infections? And I realize those numbers are moving targets. But to your point, wealthier nations had disproportionately higher infection rates relative to their population, right? Isn't it because we're arrogant and fat that the virus didn't get the memo about our exceptionalism? And while some people, and we're always kind of blaming the right for politicizing mass, haven't we on the left politicize obesity? Aren't we arrogant and fat and the virus preys on that? Yeah, I mean, I think with regard to outcomes, like if someone were mm-hmm. to get sick, severely sick, be hospitalized, there, I think there's direct tie-ins to how healthy we are or not. And and the same can be said for a lot of wealthy countries, these diseases of affluence, if you will, mm-hmm. diabetes, heart disease, uh, obesity, things that definitively put people at higher risk of getting sick. I think it's a little bit less of a straight line to just cases, just the spread of a virus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who, who uh, had these diseases, they weren't necessarily more likely to come in contact with the virus, but if they got mm-hmm. it, they were more likely to get sick. So what, at one point, it was 25% of the world's cases for just under 5% of the world's population. Hmm. That, that, I think, is harder to explain away. And, and I don't think the, you know, I think you're right, the, the idea that people haven't talked about our pre-existing health conditions enough is is true, and you know I've, I've obviously been talking about it for a long time, mm-hmm. and and most people when they think about getting healthy, they they think about it in, in the in the sort of context of oh this will prevent a heart attack 20, 30 years down the line, but I think one thing this pandemic did was remind us uh, of just how important good health is always, not just yeah. to prevent decades future disease. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that that's going to be a message that hopefully comes across. I think there was a component, Scott, to cut to it, um, mm-hmm. that people would commingle it too easily with shaming people. Mm-hmm. They would assign responsibility for obesity. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm not sure that served the purpose that they thought it did. It's mm-hmm. a problem. It needs to be addressed. But we spend $4 trillion a year on healthcare. 70% of disease in this country is probably preventable if you, if you really mm-hmm. dig into it. And most of that is due to diet. So if we spent 1% of our healthcare budget just on making sure people had access to, to healthy foods, yeah, food deserts, it would go a long yeah. way. It would go a long yeah. way. It wouldn't fix it, but it would go a long way. I hearken back to remember the Presidential Fitness Awards oh, sure. in school? Yeah. It just felt like fitness, if you will. Like PE was mandatory. It just felt... And we had, I don't know, I, I, I agree with you that it's not fair to shame the victim or shame the person, but it does feel as if we don't want to talk about that this virus is not politically correct. And it does, it does target certain things that, as you said, these diseases, diseases of affluence. So do you think America sort of missed, this is a loaded question, did America miss an opportunity to be a real leader here globally? Yeah, I, I think that's that's uh, absolutely the case because again, we were the country. I think many other countries were looking to yeah. uh, the the uh, indices had us at, at number one in terms of pandemic preparedness. So I think you know there was an opportunity, not only to really uh, reduce the spread, save a lot of lives, save a lot of hospitalization, a lot of heartache, a lot of suffering, but also to set a set an example for the rest of the world. I think a lot of countries were looking to the United States initially to see how they were going to respond to things. And, 
And to be honest, you know, there's still a lot of that. There's a still a lot of um, um, examples that are set in terms of the world of of development, uh, the vaccines, all that sort of stuff. But I think for some basic things, there were missed opportunities here. And everyone says things got politicized, which I guess is 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 the case. Mm-hmm. But things always get politicized, right? I mean, even before this pandemic, there were measles outbreaks. Right. Mm-hmm. And and measles outbreaks in New York and in uh, Minnesota, Southern California. And those were also politicized. They were political, but a different politics that tended to be younger liberal parents who weren't vaccinating their kids. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that, you know, that's the, the politics of it is is the nugget. This sort of these sorts of issues have have been there for a long time, but they've obviously been greatly, greatly magnified because of this pandemic. So we're, I think, second only to Russia in terms of vaccine misinformation. Hmm. And, and, and I'll give you math and you tell me where I got it wrong and right. And you, one of the things I've struggled my entire career is the difference between being right and effective. And one of the things, one of the reasons I think you are effective is you demonstrate more grace. You don't immediately put people on the defensive. I get angry, say, I get very reductive. I, you know, the problem is we're fat. That's probably not a productive, that's probably not productive language. But you went on Joe Rogan and I look at Joe Rogan and think that he is a source of death, disease, and disability, <laughs> which is an incendiary statement. And you you go on and you have a three-hour conversation right. and try to talk to him about, uh, you know, how we combat misinformation. And it just, there, there's something very unhealthy I, I think when people are turning to Joe Rogan and not Dr. Sanjay Gupta for information on how to treat and prevent COVID, I mean, what's happened here? Is it is it the medical? Is it our, our medical institutions have lost trust? Is yeah. it that we live in a world of social media? But it feels as if we are listening to the wrong people. Like, what's what what has happened here, and what can be done? Well, I, I think there has been a significant erosion of trust. And to add layers to this, there's also been a perception more and more so that scientists are increasingly thought of as arrogant, didactic, and elitist, yeah. elitist all that. And I think if you put that into the, the um, sort of fabric of social media where information is democratized and you, you would have a hard time, even you know, someone who's got good intent may have a hard time distinguishing good versus bad information. I mean, when I did Joe Rogan's podcast, the, and, and, you know, the thing is, he's got a lot of people who listen to him. Yeah. And he, he talks about um, the idea that, uh, you know, he's trying to be a critical thinker. And I wanted, I really was curious, like, what does that look like? And, and I think we went into it sort of knowing that we probably weren't going to agree on what we think, but I was curious how he thought about things. But I think what, what you know, when you're saying, hey, look, here is a study from the CDC which shows that if you are vaccinated, you are eight times less likely to get infected. Mm-hmm. And if the response is, so you're saying you could still get infected, that's the response, right? Well, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you, you numbers here. So it doesn't really work, the vaccine. No, no, you can on. still what die I with said, a seatbelt on or an airbag, right? <laughs> right. And, 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 then, and then, you know, you start going down these, these paths and it's, uh, it's frustrating. Are people, uh, you know, studies versus people's own anecdotal experience? I had a friend 
who got sick after taking the vaccine. What You want me to mm-hmm. get sick after taking the vaccine? Is that what you're telling me I should do? Were well, you going to come visit me in the hospital if I take the vaccine and get sick? They turn these into very emotional arguments based on anecdotal data that, you know, I can't refute it. I, you know, I don't know these people. But when you start citing the the big studies, and, but they're coming from sources like the CDC, and there's already distrust because you remember they told you not to wear masks and they told you to wear masks. I mean, they obviously don't know anything about what they're talking about. I don't Mm -hmm. trust anything they say. So instead, I'm going to Google, you know, articles from various newspapers that editorialize studies and and that's going to be my Bible. And it's dangerous. It, it, It really is. I mean, I, I I think the conversations are important, Scott, in terms of the last thing you asked is what to do about it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. But I don't know that sitting on the sidelines and saying, hey, I'm just going to continue talking to people who already probably mostly agree with me yeah, is the right us. answer. Yeah. I do think social media has an obligation to better be able to distinguish between good and bad information. Right now, you know, certain mm-hmm. pieces of information will get flagged and things like that. But that's not going to work going into the future because people mm-hmm. can get confirmation bias just like that. Just snap yeah. their fingers. Google right now, five, five-year-old dies of COVID vaccine, and you will find articles that you will then share with people to validate your point of view. And it's, it's frightening. It really is. And it's dangerous. So to Joe Rogan's credit, he has a huge audience, but he brought you on for three hours. And my sense is he really wanted to hear your view. <laughs> and after spending three hours, I think Joe Rogan, maybe with the exception of Tucker Carlson and a few other people, has more influence over people's actions than almost anybody right now. And did you walk away optimistic? What were your thoughts when you left that three-hour conversation with Joe Rogan? Well, my, my most immediate thought was that he's not, he's not ever going to get vaccinated. Um, you know, that was a, a sort of uh, a through line, uh, through, you know, through the discussion. And, you know, he is, is just not going to do it. Although he did say at one point that he had considered getting vaccinated, but then did not because of logistical issues. What I thought uh, was that I didn't think that I was going to change Joe Rogan's mind. And, and to be fair, I didn't expect that all of a sudden he'd be like, oh, my gosh, I've learned yeah. all this new stuff. And you convinced up my me. And yes, yeah. I didn't think that was going to happen. But I did, you know, I did hear from a lot of his his listeners in various ways, people who said that, you know, questions were answered that they really hadn't gotten answers to before because they're not watching the news. They're not reading the newspaper. They're getting most of their information from people like Joe Rogan and on social media. So I I think that maybe it was worthwhile, especially at a time when we're trying to, uh, you know, close this pandemic down or at least control it, uh, you know, get, get more people vaccinated. I will say again, the, I, the thing about Joe and, and others like him, and I, you know, Joe, Joe's a very, I think he's a thoughtful guy. I mean, we talked a lot on the phone beforehand, um, but what I couldn't tell is the motivation. It does, does, do, do you see yourself as a, a creator of chaos or do you see yourself as sort of a guardian of the galaxy? And I think mm-hmm. that he sort of sees himself more as the guardian of the galaxy. Hey guys, mm-hmm. you're all missing it, Okay. Hey, let me tell you what those guys won't tell you. You know, Pfizer here, this, that, and the other thing. They're in it for the money. You know, CDC, they're in bed with Pfizer. You know, they, they got this whole rabbit hole of, of, of conspiracy theories that they go down. But for him, at least, I don't think he's just trying to throw bombs, um, although many people interpret it that way. I think he sees himself as the guy who's catching things other people are missing. Mm-hmm. And he thinks he's being legitimately, he's protecting people as a result. Um, but it was a, you know, I think in the end, I thought it was, it, it, 
was worthwhile in that it may have influenced some of his his listeners. There's a lot of people who listen, and some of them may have been mm-hmm. on the fence just never having heard this some of this information before. Coming up after the break. So intense activity, great for your cardiovascular system, but if it's your brain you're trying to hack, as you said, uh, moderate activity, it makes a much bigger difference. And you find in places where moderate activity is built into lifestyle, um, those are some of the places that do have the lowest rates of, of dementia in the world. Stay with us. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The book you wrote that's had the biggest impact on me or is most relevant is you a uh, book you wrote last year, Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age, where you talk about uh, trying to debunk some of the myths around aging and cognitive decline. Can you give us some hacks around how to maintain uh, great brain health? Sure. You know, I, if, I just want to tell you quickly, you know, I, I wrote this book in part because— um, I've been studying neuroscience for a long time. The mm-hmm. conventional wisdom is, you know, we all heard it since we were kids that you have a certain amount of brain cells, neurons, and you you have those cells, you're given a certain number, you drain the cash as you get older, uh, bad habits will drain the cash faster, all that sort of stuff. The mm-hmm. only time you could grow new brain cells, it was thought was when you're a baby, your brain was still mm-hmm. forming and in response to an injury or a stroke or something like that. But over the last, you know, really 10 to 15 years now, um, if you go to the neuroscience meetings, the, there's so much enthusiasm around the idea of what's called neurogenesis, the idea that you can grow new brain cells at any age. And that was, I found that incredibly inspiring. Um, and it, it had real practical purposes in the world of, as a clinician, to help people recover from things, but also just for every day. Uh, if you could grow new brain cells uh, throughout your life and we weren't necessarily that great at doing it. How do we do it? And, and what benefit might we accrue in terms of mm-hmm. our overall brain function, but the possibility of reducing disease like dementia, for example, in particular? So that was, that was um, sort of what propelled me to write the book. And it was basically you know, a three-year project of talking to these neuroscientists all over the world, going to places where they had really, really low rates of dementia, so low that if someone developed dementia, it would get written up in the medical journal. That's how unusual it was. So I was like, what are they doing? How do they, what do they know we don't know? You know, it, it was all that. It was looking at the large epidemiological studies and then really bolstering it with the, with the scientific evidence of why things like this would work. So, you know, um, when it came to, to diet, for example, I think because people have thought of the brain really, truly as a black box and that it's only measured by its inputs and its outputs, people really didn't get an understanding of, of the inner workings of it. That's changed. And when we really start to, to look deep, we realize that the old adages like what's good for the heart is also good for the brain are somewhat true, but, but not completely true. Um, like act- activity, we say go do intense exercise for right. your cardiovascular health, you know, run hard, work out hard, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. 
But what you find is that for the brain, activity is fantastic. But moderate mm-hmm. activity releases something known as brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is hmm. this this kind of miracle grow for the brain. Uh, that, those are the words of a very esteemed neuroscientist that I interviewed. Problem with doing intense exercise, intense activities, you also release a lot of cortisol, a stress hormone, and that kind of counteracts the the uh, the BDNF, this this neurotrophic factor. So intense activity, great for your cardiovascular system, but if it's your brain hmm. you're trying to hack, as you said, uh, moderate activity, it makes a much bigger difference. And you find in places where moderate activity is built into lifestyle, um, those are some of the places that do have the lowest rates of, of dementia in the world. So that's just an, an, an example of sort of where we were, how we thought about things, and how it's slightly different. It may not sound like a huge difference, but you start applying that across populations and you can start to dramatically reduce incidence of some of these diseases that we worry about, or at least at least improve function. There was another thing, I'll just tell you quickly, um, that I found fascinating, and that is that if you look at the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease, and typically it's diagnosed later in life, but because we have so much technology now, if you actually were to look at scans of those brains decades earlier, when the person had absolutely no symptoms, no clue that Alzheimer's might await them, you would find changes in the brain. You would find hmm. some changes in the brain. Now, they were obviously not clinically relevant because the person felt fine. You wouldn't have known it if you hadn't scanned the person for something else. You usually got scanned for a car accident or headache or something unrelated. And, and, and so what does that tell us? It tells us that this disease begins a lot earlier, yes, but it also tells us that it is possible to have a brain that has these changes in it that does not become a brain that is uh, uh, manifesting Alzheimer's disease or dementia. So instead of spending, you know, tons of money, billions of dollars on these therapeutics to rid the brain of plaque, uh, which haven't really worked nearly as well as anybody hoped or expected, um, what about the things that actually teach people to have that brain function despite the plaques? And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a lot of what uh, these scientists have been, have been working on as well. So I love this. I, and, and this is the, I'll take away several things, but this is the one thing I'll, I think I'll remember. And that is, because uh, I did not know this. I knew that extreme or vigorous exercise, uh, you know, push yourself hard. My, 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 my belief, and you've confirmed it, is that that is good for you. But that you want to do a crossword puzzle, you want to engage in conversation, you want to read a book. But I did not know this. Do you want to avoid and maybe this is impossible, exceptional moments of stress where you're overloaded with information. In other words, how do we, so I understand the action around exercise, push yourself harder, do that next set, you know, up the Peloton, if you will. But as it relates to the hack around avoiding those moments of extreme overwork or stress with the brain, how do you take action against that? What kind of situations are you trying to avoid? I think that uh, that the thing that I took away from it and spending a lot of time with these, again, these scientists who now incorporate this into their life is that they're not shying away from, this was all around activity, first of all, leaving aside cognitive Mm -hmm. exercises like crosswords, brain training, anything like that, which I can talk about because I also found fascinating. But but the, the idea that, you know, if cardiovascular health, which we should all be thinking about, I mean, heart disease Mm -hmm. is still the biggest killer in the country. 
Uh, an intense exercise can be helpful, but we also recognize some of the, the downsides of that now when it comes to the brain. It does release a lot of cortisol. It's predictable. It's not so much stress-related as, as people typically think about, I'm overtaxed, I've got too much on my plate, whatever. It is truly cortisol release in response to, uh, to high activity, to really stressing the body. Um, oh, so when, the two are connected. So that extreme exercise, while being good for your heart and your muscles or, or whatever, is, is bad for the brain. Right. It, it, it at least doesn't allow the good stuff, this neurotrophic mm -hmm. factor, to actually exert its good, good impact on the brain. It kind of counteracts the BDNF, this neurotrophic factor. So it, it's, it, it doesn't make a lot of evolutionary sense. But if you do look at, uh, I spent time with this indigenous tribe in Bolivia, they're hunter-gatherers, true hunter-gatherers. As we all do, Sanjay. No big deal. Part of the fun. Part of the fun. <laughs> the, uh, but when you do that, you realize that the hunters like, like them, they, they're not ever really running after their yeah. prey. They're, they're not outrunning their prey. They're outlasting their prey. They just walk and track and walk and track, and they end up eventually, they wait for the animal to tire out, and they eventually go mm -hmm. in there with their bow and arrow. So it, it, it's, it's like when, when you look at these lifestyles of people who do have... That's, that's an extreme, obviously, an indigenous tribe. But even in these blue zones or these places where people live long lives uh, with far fewer of these, these sort of diseases of aging, hmm. you, you see these patterns of lifestyle that emerge. And we saw that for some time, but now we could actually start to explain why that, that might make a difference. Well, let me ask it a different way. What is Sanjay Gupta's workout routine? So I have a, I have a really strong family history of heart disease. Uh, my father had bypass surgery in his late 40s. His father, my grandfather, died in his 50s of a heart attack. So it's something I, I really am very mindful of. So I have, I do intensely exercise uh, every day. I do something. Either um, mm -hmm. COVID made it a little bit challenging to do things like swims because I love swimming as well. But I will run, do weights or, and or bike uh, on the Peloton or something like that every day. Um, mm -hmm. which is important to me. But I'll also try and I take a half an hour walk or so with a friend or my wife or a child, one of my kids, just about most days of the week as well, a brisk walk mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll connect, which I think is also very good for the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk about our problems. Talking about your problems is a way of, of really, I think, magnifying the, the relationship. Like if you're vulnerable to somebody, it really magnifies the relationship. So I, I, I just want to pop, put pause on that. I understand doing that with your wife. Do you do that with your kids? Do you talk about yeah. what's upsetting you or the things you're struggling with with your kids? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, you know, I, I modulate myself a little bit. I mean, that's not mm -hmm. the same conversations I'd have with my wife. I, I think people oftentimes separate their work and their personal life balance. They draw this mm -hmm. line and make a one. I, I, I just, that wasn't possible for me. Uh, and as a result, what I found was letting them in on things as opposed it's to- It's cathartic. I love sharing is. my day with my spouse. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what's great. It's going on at work. I find it's a way to kind of ease into, ease into the other part of your life. And, and there's, there's a shortcut that really happens when you're doing it with someone like that because they know- they know the, the matrix in, in, in which this is all being said, right? I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not coming to them de novo. They're like, oh, well, that must bother you then because of X. This also happened. Or, ah, oh, shoot, I know you really wanted that and that didn't happen. So I'm, I'm, 
you know, I'm bummed, I'm sad for you, but you know, like, or I'm thrilled for you, depending on what it is, you know? So Mm -hmm. with my kids, you know, I do a lot of listening too. You know, I think it's, uh, it's important. I mean, I, I think that they want to talk, but they won't unless it's some sort of environment where they feel like they can. And going on a walk where there's no one else around and it's just us and get the heart beating a little bit and uh, it makes it makes a difference. It's good for me. It's good for them. But the, the 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 revelation here and the thing that has me a little bit freaked out is I've always thought I do CrossFit and I push yeah. myself exceptionally hard. It's kind of my antidepressant and I'm really cooked by the end of it. What you're saying is that's the reason I'm so fucking stupid and losing my shit, <laughs> that there may be a downside to that. that it might be, OK, ease up a little bit. Is that do I have that wrong? No, I, I, I don't think, uh, I, I think you can keep doing the exercise that you're doing, but if you can find time, which it sounds like you do, to, to do things that are more moderate activities. Like people, the human yeah. body wasn't designed to sit or lie for 23 hours a day and then go to the gym for an hour. It, that's not yeah. how we were designed. So the idea that moderate activity in there as a, yeah, with purpose. Take a walk. Yeah. yeah, with purpose, not just a primary walk for no reason, but maybe a secondary part of an activity as part of a discussion with family member or something like that, I think is 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 really good. And the science, like more than anything else, when I was doing Keep Sharp, it's that type of activity that had the best evidence behind it for neurogenesis. It's almost mm-hmm. as if you're signaling, hey, man, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm here. I'm active. I, you know, I want to keep the brain sharp. I'm thinking a lot as I'm doing this activity. So build me some more brain cells. And, um, you know, I, that's, I, I feel like I can envision that now when I'm doing these walks. And I, I, I really relish the time when I have it. So I usually, towards the end of the program, ask uh, you to provide advice to your younger self. What, what I want to, I want to be more selfish here, and that is you have kids that are about to, or college age or pre-college mm-hmm. age, right? You're thinking about, so I don't want to say about to lose your kids, but your the kid's about to leave the house. Uh, I started late in life. I have an 11 and a 14 year old and I look at it. Okay. I got one for another four years. I got one for another seven. What advice would you give me? <laughs> I don't think you should ever live with regrets or guilt. First of all, because I think those are toxic mm-hmm. um, and they don't serve the purpose that you might think they will. It mm-hmm. makes uh, you unhappy and it makes people around you unhappy and uncomfortable. So, I mean, it, it, I, I start it that way because it leads to what I think is, I'm sure, advice that you've, you've heard before. And, and that is that, you know, you, you're, you probably know some of your, your happiest times, you know, when your brain really feels like it's the health. Like, what is a healthy brain? A healthy brain, uh, someone described it to me as one that has a really, really well-defined and large circle of us. You, you let people into your, your life. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you really want them there and you, you respect their, their points of view and listen to them and, and whatever it may be. So I do that. My, my best times in life as someone who is now in my early 50s have been the, those times with my kids. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is getting better um, even as they get older. I mean, because now the conversations are, I mean, they, they're amazing. I mean, kids is like they're, 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 they're experiencing novel things every day. Adults don't get to experience novel things as much, but kids do. And just having those conversations is really, it's, it's helpful. And it's not because I feel guilty not doing it. It's because I find it really instructive. It's influenced my reporting. It's influenced how I think about things. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm missing the boat. And then I talk to a 16-year-old daughter and she's like, let me tell you how I think about this. But I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a great person to probably give any kind of parenting advice. I mean, most people would say, 
probably spend too much time working, not enough time just sort of relaxing, enjoying life. And I, I just don't think that's the way that I'm wired. It's not, a, it's not a good thing. I'm not suggesting this as some desirable trait, but I would get really um, antsy, you know, even when we go away on vacations and stuff, I always needed something to do. So as the kids got older, doing something was with them. It would be something, but we would do it together. And along the lines of, I've read a lot that the best thing you can do for your kids is to be a good husband to your wife. Any thoughts on being a good husband? <laughs> I think the 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 key really that I've come to, and again, I say this with great humility, but you have to ask yourself, do you fundamentally really respect your spouse, your mm-hmm. partner? Do you have respect and and mean it? Because if you do, then you're you're going to be dying to know what she thinks or he thinks about things. You know, uh, you're going to be, you're really going to value that person's opinion. I, I see when I'm interacting sometimes with couples and I could see like if somebody cuts the other person off several times, kind of dismissive of their points of view. Yeah, the eye roll. Yeah. Yeah, I find that to be a, a significant red flag. I mean, there was a, um, you may remember, I think it was, uh, I think it was Gladwell that wrote about this marriage counselor in, in yeah. uh, the Northwest who said what, within a few minutes of watching a couple interact, discussing anything about their relationship, he was predictive uh, of how long the relationship would last. And I read that, I actually called the guy, I read his studies and was really curious about that. But I yeah, think- Yeah, it was when the I, eye roll. That, they said if you see an eye roll, roll it means it's, there's trouble in Mudville. There's, it's this dismissiveness. So, you know, find yeah. somebody that you love, find someone that you respect as well. And, and, you know, make sure that, make sure that you're always nurturing that respect, you know, finding new reasons to respect her, which I do. I mean, she's, look, she's got me through this. I've known my wife a long time. Um, I was a resident in neurosurgery uh, during arguably the busiest time of my life, uh, maybe up until now, I think the pandemic sort of rivaled that, but you know, hundred hours a week really no social sort of life and the socially awkward guy. I mean, if you, if you, I chose to go to medical school when I was 16, I got accepted into this uh, accelerated program. So I knew right, that hold, that was Hold good. on, hold on. You went to medical school at 16? I, I got accepted, you know, it was a program so called like Inaflex. So you're like Gupta here? <laughs> well, 16? You know, yeah. Yeah. I started college when I was 16, <laughs> but, but accepted to medical school. Yeah, that's that's a that's a whole nother podcast. I'd be curious to see your oh thoughts on those God. types of. Pro- <laughs> but it was for it was for people who were reasonably sure. Although at sixteen, how sure can you be of anything? I guess, but reasonably sure they wanted to be doctors. But my point is that it was it was years of that. It was seven years of neurosurgery training. It was a year of fellowship after that, and that's a, you know it's two decades of my life. And right. and I have a wife who kind of came to me at some of the busiest, darkest times during that. Those, those two decades and uh, really kind of, you know, we've been together since. Sanjay Gupta is the chief medical correspondent for CNN and host of the CNN podcast, Chasing Life. In addition to his work for CNN, Sanjay is an associate professor of neurosurgery at Emory University Hospital and associate chief of neurosurgery at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta. He serves as a diplomat of the American Board of Neurosurgery. And in 2019, Gupta was elected to the National Academy of Medicine, considered one of the highest honors in the medical field. He joins us from a closet in Atlanta. Stay stay safe, Dr. Gupta. Enjoy those walks. What an honor. Scott, thanks for having me. Hope to speak to you soon. (laughs) 
Algebra of happiness, picking a partner. I was struck by Dr. Sanjay Gupta's description of uh, his kind of criteria or how important he thought it was respect for his mate. And he talked about sort of decompressing at the end of the day. And people, everyone talks about the importance of a distinction between work and your home life. And what I have found is that it is almost impossible to just turn it off. If you're successful, your professional life is going to slowly but surely take over your life for certain stretches. Uh, not only just Monday through Friday, professional endeavor has taken over my life for several decades. And right now it's taken over my life again because I'm working a lot. And this is a function of opportunity. This is a good thing. But having people in your life that you can decompress with and talk about these things with and share with, uh, and I'm starting to share them with my sons. I thought it was really interesting what Dr. Gupta said. I tell them a little bit about what I'm up to and trying to incorporate time together into sort of that decompression. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about what are the values or how do you pick a mate? And there's some research here. Uh, so, so first and foremost, uh, or I think table stakes, I think you have to be physically attracted to this person. And um, there's a certain, I don't know if it's political correctness or wokeness that you know likes to think that we should pick people on attributes for anything but how much you're attracted to them. Being physically attracted to someone is table stakes. You have to want to touch this person and have sex with them. And that comes from a variety of places. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean they have to be hot. It also doesn't mean they have to look the way that the traditional media complex has trained you to believe what are the standard or the mores of physical attraction. I, I went out with some women uh, who were beautiful by traditional standards uh, that by what society was telling me was, oh, you should be very attracted to this person because she's uh, six feet tall and has high cheekbones. And, and, I, and the reality is I'm not attracted to that body type. And it really isn't important what anybody else thinks. And nobody knows what happens between you and that person in terms of the chemistry and the smells and what, you know, quite frankly, just what gets you hot for, for each other. That is singular and it says, I choose you. It's really important. And I think one of the keys to a healthy relationship is constantly expressing affection and sexual desire. I think people want to feel wanted. That's number one. The second is values. And that is things like religion. How close are we going to live to our parents? Uh, what is the role that um, uh, our families are going to have in our, you know, kind of religion, things like that. And then the third one is money. What is our approach to money? And this kind of kind of stitches in career. And the number one source of divorce and uh, relationship angst or marital angst isn't infidelity or laggy, lag, even lack of attraction. It's uh, disagreements over money. Um, we live in a capitalist society. Money is so important, and it's so important that you sync up with people. But what Dr. Gupta said that really uh, struck me is that the healthiest relationships I've had have had those first two. I'm attracted to the person, uh, our values sort of sync up, but more than anything, more than anything, I really value this person's opinion. Uh, this is somebody I can come home to uh, and say, this is what's going on with me across a variety of scenarios, and I value that person's input. And I have a lot of friends or a number of friends, and I look at the fissures in the relationship, and I think they really don't give a shit what the other person thinks. So long-winded way of saying when you meet somebody, and you think about establishing a long-term relationship, there is a litmus test on a variety of issues, whether it's business, whether it's relationships, whether it's a view of the world, 
do you care what this person thinks? Do you respect their opinion? Because uh, you are going to be around this person a lot. And to be successful, one plus one equals three. You want someone who can be an advisor to you, a confidant, and who, quite frankly, sometimes can save you from yourself. It's very hard to read the label from inside the bottle. This is, this is your spouse. This is your wife. This is your husband. This is your sexual partner. This is the person you're going to have kids with. But this has to be also someone you trust and someone whose opinion you value. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. What original scripted television are you watching? What am I watching? Oh, no, you're not watching anything, right? <laughs> you don't have time. Is that right? I watched Queen's Gambit when that was out last year. Okay. I mean, I, I, it has been really— Last year. Last year, but oh, I just watched it this that's year. That's how you go to so. medical school at 16. <laughs> no, you no, don't have it. No, you no, don't even have subscriptions no, to this no, shit, I do, do I, you? I, I, have, I have those subscri- 